Nation. Providing you with the practical tools and expert knowledge to optimize your strength, health and mindset inside and out. With your host, Steve Katarzy. Cholesterol. It's a big deal, right? It's probably the biggest issue that we worry about when we get our bloods done. God, I hope I don't have high cholesterol. I hope my LDL, my bad cholesterol, is not too high. And why? Because it's been beaten into us for decades upon decades that LDL cholesterol is the root cause to increased risk of heart disease and heart-related illnesses. Well, this episode is a fantastic discussion with Dave Feldman as he unpacks all that you ever need to know about cholesterol. What is it? Why do we have it in our bodies? What roles does it have in our bodies? But then he goes into just dropping bomb after bomb in terms of understanding lipoproteins in your body, what LDL does for us, its benefits, the data that supports or doesn't, the idea that LDL cholesterol is bad. We then get into low-carb diets and how you typically see high LDL and how that perhaps isn't something to worry about. And yeah, we just go across the board giving you just wisdom as it relates to cholesterol. And after this episode, you should feel at ease with cholesterol. Respect the role it has in your body. Respect the lipoproteins and those energy systems. And just have a more nuanced position as to whether you really do need to avoid high cholesterol foods and how you should respond to blood results where your cholesterol numbers are higher than what your physicians suggest. And do make sure you check out the show notes that references all the links we spoke about, as well as giving you a bit of a plotted guide as to the kind of things we're going to be talking about over the next two hours. It is a long one, but it is so worth it. So let's just get into this school of cholesterol, should we? Enjoy it. It is going to enlighten you. And look, guys, if there are people in your lives that you know are worried about cholesterol for whatever reason, do send them this episode. Do them the favor. Help them be enlightened too. Enjoy the show, guys. I must admit, Dave, I was inspired by your work just recently. Um, Hence the reason we got this podcast going. I had been listening to a bunch of your stuff across uh, a few different podcast channels. uh, And I've got onto your um, website called cholesterolcode.com. And I was just drawn, drawn into how you speak about cholesterol, the the hypothesis that you you put out there, both in terms of what lipids are doing and what cholesterol is doing in our body. And it led me to write write a piece on the adaptnation.io website that I think you may have seen. And Dave, I've also had my bloods done. So this is just such a timely conversation. (laughs) Uh, I can't wait to get into it. But first of all, Dave, let me just kind of give a scene set for the audience, if you don't mind. So, and I'm going to get this kind of wrong, so feel free to correct any misunderstanding. So you're a software engineer, and I'd love to know uh, a little bit about that, but we'll get through that in a second. You're, you know, a business planner, an entrepreneur, you call yourself a citizen scientist, which I love, I love that concept. And you're a thought leader, in my eyes, when it comes to all things cholesterol. You've got a website called cholesterolcode.com. And my understanding is you've done some massive data crunching of 
um, otherwise readily available data in the context of kind of health markers to understand cholesterol and unpack it from a scientist's or a kind of phys physicist perspective. And more importantly, um, you've, been, you've, you've reached the level of notoriety most recently in a documentary called Fat, a documentary by Vinnie Torchek. Um, and as well as that, I think you're putting a book together. So this is going to be super interesting. And Dave, I'd love for maybe us to talk straight about the documentary because that literally launched, was it last week? I think it was. I think it was last week. Yeah. And you were on it, it and you were on it quite a bit. And it was great to see, man. Talk to me about that experience. Well, first of all, I, it, it was a bit humbled because many of the people in that documentary, um, Nina Teicholtz, uh, Gary Taubes, uh, even perhaps one of my favorite people being the uh, cardiologist, um, uh, Brett Shear, and of course, Ivor Cummins, a fellow engineer for that matter. All of them I hold in extremely high regard. And it's it's fascinating to see myself on this screen where I go, man, I'm just I'm living a life of perpetual imposter syndrome because I'm just a guy in many respects. I'm just a guy who got propelled into this world of trying to kind of reverse engineer this whole concept behind cholesterol because I got high cholesterol numbers. I really had no interest in biochemistry or biology uh, until about four years ago and really because of fear because I wanted to understand what was going on and per what you just sort of mentioned I'm a software engineer so I actually ended up kind of I think in a way I was sort of the right guy at the right time for what was available because this system that's in our body that moves around cholesterol uh, in many respects it resembles a network the same kind of network that I've worked on my whole life with software engineering. And where, where did you work, if you don't mind me? Or are you, are you still actively kind of moonlighting, doing something else? Or is this your full-time gig focused on cholesterol and, and really the, you know, the discussion into the low-carb community? It's, it's pretty much my full-time gig at this point. I was a software entrepreneur. So I, the, last, the last place I left was uh, the business that I helped to start. Uh, perhaps a better way of setting this up is I left a department of the company that bought our company out. So we uh -huh. ended up co-directing the uh, department there. And it was it was exciting. It, and at the time that I had left, I had left with a nest egg and planned to take a sabbatical because I've just I've been working my butt off as an entrepreneur for a long time. I had, you know, some savings. And so I was just going to make games for a couple of years and then probably return back to being an entrepreneur again. And that actually worked out for me again, kind of being the right time because when I got my cholesterol numbers, I had enough money and availability that I could then start conducting these crazy end of one experiments that I'm sure you've uh, uh, read up on or have seen me interview on and so forth. Uh, but, but effectively I started to, manipulate my cholesterol numbers substantially using this kind of network understanding. And indeed, I found that uh, metabolically, which is to say specifically from changing diet, I could change my cholesterol numbers by substantial margins. So are you by any chance uh, an obsessive character, Dave? Because <laughs> you had no no interest in <laughs> in biology. This wasn't your full-time gig. You haven't, you know, 
you know, had a, an academic career in un- understanding biology. You have a little bit of free time on your hands. The next thing you know, it you're on a documentary <laughs> with, with your with your yeah, understanding right. of something so complex. I mean, how did did this just snowball? Did did the interest just kind of manifest to the point that you just you couldn't let go of this idea, or yeah, yeah. or was there other things kicking in that kind of made it uh, a motivating area of exploration? So I'm going to say it's a combination. It's first first the initial driver was the concern as to whether or not I was in danger with my high levels of cholesterol. I had high levels of cholesterol because I had gone on a low-carb diet. Well, I wanted to understand if this network inside our body is moving around cholesterol, around cholesterol. You know, what else is it moving around? And I, I found that cholesterol was inside these things called lipoproteins, which is this boat that your body makes out of uh, these different molecules that are hydrophilic, you know, water loving, which is good because your blood is water based. Okay, that's great. But is there is there other stuff? And indeed, it turns out that there is. There's the energy you happen to be powered on in a low carb diet, which are fatty acids. And in particular, that's fatty acids in the form of triglycerides. So here are triglycerides and cholesterol that happen to ride share in this same boat, this lipoprotein, and the lipoprotein of interest is low density lipoprotein, LDL. So at that point I was like, wow, I wonder if I could change around how I'm fueled and that it would change around this LDL. And indeed it did. So yes, getting back to what it is that made me obsessive, the engineer kicked in past the point of fear and I started thinking, wow, this is great. I can manipulate. I I'm, I'm feel like I'm, I found the cheat code <laughs> to this lipid system. I want to understand everything I can about it. And I can go down the street to the hospital and privately pay through an online service for my own labs. So long as I had the money, which I did, and so long as I had the tenacity <laughs> of an engineer in structuring my life around these experiments, which I do, then I can make a lot of things happen quickly. And indeed, I've accumulated quite a lot of data in the last three and a half years. So obsessive, definitely, definitely obsessive, at least enough to the point where I can execute a lot of these experiments as I mean to. And for what it's worth, one of the things I'm very proud of is to what degree I've been able to uh, contribute to other people being um, obsessive in a good way <laughs> towards doing end of one data and also sharing that back to us, to the rest of the community. Yeah, I think your work is fantastic. And we're going to get into that in a second. But yeah, just, just what you've said there, it, I, I've got a bit of an uh, obsessive personality. We were only having that conversation earlier today with my wife. You know, once I get into something, it, it's hard to pull me away. And I dig deeper and deeper, sometimes into rabbit holes, sometimes into revelations. Um, but did did any part of that journey, did it click in? And, and was there this realization, actually, maybe I can make a career of this? Or was it just I'm on a sabbatical, I'm taking time out, this is interesting, let me poke around. I'm just trying to understand if there was a a point in time when this became okay, right, this will be my full time job, or this is what I'm going to major in now at this part of my life. There was, um, and I speak about this in my book, in effect, there's one more thing beyond just my personal passion to solve this puzzle. And it's just how 
extremely relevant it is right now. So it's no surprise that the most profitable uh, drugs on the market, um, or at least the most profitable drug that I'm aware of, is a cholesterol-lowering drug. I think it's Lipidor. And it's the industry as a whole is set to uh, profit a great deal. And it may very well be justified because it may be that we are supposed to lower our LDL in this modern environment, and therefore we would gain a benefit. But it's worth examining that, particularly in the circumstance of where you are powered by fat. And if you're powered by fat, being on a low-carb diet, you see your LDL If that's so, then is it worth it for people to abandon the low-carb diet, get away from it if they see that their LDL cholesterol goes up? And if so, how many people would be hurt by that if it turned out to be false, that that actually was not the route that they should have taken? And so I, I've kind of felt, and I want to say this, um, I want to be sure that the way that I set this up, it doesn't sound like it's, it's a prideful thing, but I feel like in a way I, I may be able to be pushing around this missing piece of the puzzle. And to whatever degree I can help get it in the larger uh, picture, I want to accomplish. And so a catalyst for me was when there were a number of people that were writing to me absolutely themselves at their wits end, trying to figure out what was going on. And some of this research helped to kind of answer that question for them. And it was at that point that there were a lot more people who were sort of involved in this uh, journey that I was on that were very reliant on this information that I started to feel a much more personal investment. Um, spoke about this one last year. There is a, a two-year-old toddler who's an epileptic and their parents reached out to me because she was thriving on a ketogenic diet. And, and I'm not sure how well you or your listeners may know this, but the ketogenic diet originated to aid in epilepsy. Like that's really where it came from over a hundred years ago. And here she was actually doing very well on this ketogenic diet and all of her markers looked great, save one. And the one marker that didn't look good was her LDL cholesterol. And from that, the pediatrician pushed back, uh, said that, you know, she may have to do a more modified version. The new more modified version included a lot more carbs and a lot less protein. And she wasn't doing very well on that. And that, that was a moment where I, I realized, you know, I, it's not even just the adults, it's the kids. I mean, you've got not just epileptics, you've got, say, type 1 diabetic children and other cases where there's really a strong reason for them to be able to go low carb because it really does have a, an outcome towards quality of life or just longevity. And so in that sense, I sort of feel like I need to be on this journey until at a minimum my research can kind of be carried a lot more by other people uh, smarter than me. <laughs> I think that's a noble pursuit. I think cholesterol is clearly an, it's an issue. At least it's a, an issue, issue in society. Everyone wants to know about their cholesterol and wants to know if it's bad. And the, the idea of bad is, hey, if I'm having too many eggs, <laughs> if I'm having too much saturated fat, I'm probably going to have bad cholesterol. And do you know what? When I go on a kind of veg-heavy diet, it drops. I know that's what I should be doing. And if someone gets their blood markers tested and 
you know, they wear it like a badge of honor if they've got low cholesterol. Yet, what's interesting to me is that the, the cholesterol has got a, quite a few important roles in our body. And maybe if we can understand that, then we can back into your hypothesis and as, as well as that really why there's a linkage between cholesterol and heart disease and maybe try and unpack it for our audience. So why don't we start there? I mean, from your understanding, before we you know put the enemy number one mark on cholesterol, if we just take it back to grassroots, what is cholesterol? What does it do in the human body or generally in, in the animal kingdom? Why do we have it in our body in the first place? I'm glad you asked because actually cholesterol from an engineer's eyes is really pretty amazing. If you look at it, it actually is kind of the invented molecule of the animal kingdom. It doesn't naturally occur in nature. It's It's got to be created by our systems. And these systems, these animal systems that are moving around that are highly complex. I mean, both you and I, we have around 100 trillion cells. All of them have cholesterol and they all need the cholesterol to have the kind of membrane they do, which is just, it's just stern enough, but also flexible enough to allow for the kinds of things we can accomplish. And that's not only interesting in terms of structure, but on top of that, it's a precursor to so many different hormones, including sex hormones. It's extremely relevant to say vitamin D synthesis. And uh, obviously it's also used for things like bile acid. So cholesterol is, it's hard to disentangle cholesterol's uses from just life itself. Normally, the concern of cholesterol, it's in a specific context, and that specific cholesterol is in the blood. And once again, we were talking about those boats. More specifically, it's the cholesterol found in a specific boat, the LDL, the low-density lipoprotein boat. But yet, we see a good correlation with cholesterol that's found in the so-called good boat, HDL, high-density lipoproteins. And so that high-density lipoprotein cholesterol is considered good cholesterol. You want to know the difference in the molecules between LDL cholesterol and HDL cholesterol? You want to guess? I would guess, just be because I'm going to play devil's advocate, that there isn't any difference. There's exactly no difference. <laughs> <laughs> cholesterol is basically the same molecule. It you could argue it comes in two flavors. For the geeks out there, there's unesterified and esterified cholesterol. And unesterified, also called free cholesterol, means there's no side chain. Um, and esterified means that there is. There's this kind of additional portion that stretches on from it. But the important thing is to remember it's really a kind of universal building block within our bodies. And so once again, as an engineer, I kept thinking, okay, well, why would our body want to make this cholesterol available to ourselves? Why is it so hell-bent on making sure these boats are constantly, constantly trafficking, constantly on patrol? And I believe because like the other things contained in those boats, not just the triglycerides, the energy we use, but also fat-soluble vitamins like A, D, E, and K, all of them are on this boat because they're used by our cells frequently. And there's a lot of people who right now would argue, well, that may be true for other lipoproteins but LDL. But LDL is still the bad one, and that's why it's associated with bad outcomes. That if you have a high LDL-C, you're going to have higher heart disease. You're going to have a higher buildup of plaque in the arterial walls. 
And that's that's where the controversy comes in. And when when we talk about cholesterol, just to be clear, um, our bodies produce cholesterol, correct? In yes. addition to that, we can consume cholesterol through eating animal-based products and add to our supply. And my understanding is that it's if if we eat cholesterol, we lower our internal endogenous production and vice versa to create just the right amount for us to function. Is is that a correct statement? That's exactly right. It's it's constantly counterbalancing against the amount that comes through our digestion. Okay. And a follow-on question to that. If you had no cholesterol-containing foods, which I suspect is maybe a vegan diet, that would be a, a very low cholesterol diet, um, would that cause you health outcomes related specifically to your cholesterol uh, for availability within your body? So that's a very interesting question for multiple reasons. For one, my shortened answer would be, we don't know. My longer answer is, I suspect there's a lot of individual variability and that it may be reliant on the nature of the diet that doesn't include cholesterol. So let me, let me unpack that a little bit. I think there's already lots of existing science that shows nucleated cells, which are the vast majority of the cells in your body, can synthesize their own cholesterol. And thus, many people just go to the conclusion, oh, well, therefore, this is the reason why LDL particles aren't important to have in the bloodstream is even if cells could use it, they don't need to because they don't need the cholesterol on board those things. They can make it themselves. And for that matter, we don't need it in the diet because your body can make more than enough cholesterol itself to meet the needs of what's going on in, inside the body. Now, here's the issue. The issue is we don't really have truly comprehensive studies on this. I want there to be more studies on this. And I for that matter, point to, to my low-carb friends that I have two vegan friends who were on a vegan diet for eight to nine. One was for eight years. One's been for nine years. Both of them are very fit. Both of them I've seen their blood work in. And I, I'd consider them the, um, the end of the spectrum that looks very good to me. Uh, but they're both very much nutrition fanatics. They're very good about keeping, you know, to making sure that they get everything that they need to and so forth. And Eight, nine years is a long time, but it's not a lifetime. I'm actually very interested in seeing what um, lifetime levels are, but particularly against things like, say, the uh, structure of the um, cell membranes and doing, doing other comparisons with likewise uh, healthy individuals and so forth. That I'm very interested in. I speculate that my two friends that I'm speaking of could go a very long time and maybe indefinitely. Um, but I, I just don't know because we don't really have that kind of data yet. So we don't necessarily un uh, understand any kind of nutritional precursors that are important in the production of cholesterol. Therefore, you've got to have XYZ foods in order to have your internal um, covers bases, when, uh, sorry, bases covered when it comes to cholesterol. I'm just trying to understand if there is a, is it a nutritional impact on the amount of cholesterol that we have available for both our brain and all our cells and all our hormone production. Because people do, you know, speculate, and I, I'm not sure if there's validity in these speculations that 
you need to eat cholesterol to have good hormonal production and hormonal health. And I kind of like go, yeah, that kind of makes sense at a high level because we understand it's a precursor. But if I'm not eating my eggs and having my saturated fat, um, it sounds like as if it, things will still be okay. The body will work it out. It's it's possible. And that's, again, this is, um, I try to be as diet agnostic as I can. There's really only a few things that I feel so confident to recommend against. Uh, for example, um, uh, seed oils, I feel pretty confident I could recommend against that. And, you know, refined carbohydrates. I feel pretty confident on both of those. I think, I think generally speaking, you're better off if those aren't in your diet, full stop, right? But as far as like, say, plant-based versus animal, as far as a higher cholesterol diet versus a no cholesterol diet, I don't quite know yet. There, part of the issue with plant-based diets is there's such a high recidivism rate. And there's not, of course, for example, recently there were a lot of uh, more famous vegan YouTubers who became ex-vegans and they were citing health issues that they were dealing with. But I want to be a good scientist. Is it because they were lacking cholesterol or was it because they were lacking B12 or, you know, enough vitamin D or a combination of multiples or even some substrates we're not even familiar with yet? It's, it's just too hard to say. Um, and, and this is the other issue is, is that they tended to be younger. They weren't necessarily, uh, like my two friends I'm talking about that were as obsessed about nutrition and so forth. Uh, so unfortunately to really gather the right amount of information we need for that, um, we would need to do more extensive studies and we'd need to be a lot more granular on what we pick up as far as the metrics go. I think it's great. You've said that Dave, because it's, it's so easy for people to be dogmatic about a position you know, put a line in the sand when it comes to anything nutritionally and say, this is right, all else is wrong. And, you know, being a low carb yourself and, and having affiliations in that community, um, it would be easy for us as listeners to expect you to say, you know, cholesterol, you need it in your diet. And that is one of the main reasons why, you know, vegan diets long term, you know, suffer with with various things. But I'm glad you've not said that because there doesn't seem to be the science to back up that even if it's a strong hypothesis, we don't have uh, strong enough, clear enough science, which is hard to do. Because as you said, there's so many variables. If you go on a vegan diet, you're changing lots of things, bioavailability of proteins, bioavailability of the various vitamins and minerals, uh, you may not be getting enough calories, there could be so many things going on. Uh, and cholesterol just a part. But um, it's a curiosity I'd love to understand too, I guess you do too. So let's see how the science plays out. Is there any other roles of cholesterol, though? Because I've heard even from, from you that there seems to be some immunoprotective or immune system value or role that LDL or cholesterol or maybe both have in being somewhat of like the, the ambulance for damage or injury within the body. Is, is that right? Yes. Um, but let me make a small modification to what you're asking. Please do. In this case, we're not just talking about cholesterol. We're now talking about the boats themselves. These boats that are moving it around, they absolutely serve an immunological role. And that's not idle speculation. That's actually in the literature. Um, in fact, right now, if you're listening to this and you want to learn more, uh, you could go to cholesterolcode.com and check out my colleague's work, um, Siobhan Huggins. She did a recent article. It's just absolutely fantastic and outlines many of the different 
immunological roles that have an association with cholesterol. One of my favorite, even though it's a rodent study and I'm not a huge fan of rodent studies, one of my absolute favorite was they had um, rodents that were normolipidemic, whatever. They, they had normal levels of lipids and uh, knockout mice, which is to say they knocked out their LDL receptors. So therefore they had very high levels of lipids. And I believe it was salmonella that they um, applied to the population of these mice, both the uh, control, which were the normal levels, and the intervention, which were the super high levels due to the uh, hypercholesterolemia. And the normal lipid levels, there was like a 5% survival. But for those who had hypercholesterolemia, it was a 100% survival. A <laughs> 100%. Wow. Uh, it was it was astonishing. There's they've done a lot with say lipopolysaccharides. Uh, they've observed a lot um, in terms of testing with those people who have familial hypercholesterolemia. But you know, I really want to bring up my own example because I really cannot, I honestly cannot get over this. Since I had gone on a ketogenic diet in 2015, and presumably, even though I hadn't tested then, uh, my my cholesterol levels and in particular my LDL particles were much higher. I have not even gotten a cold. Never mind the flu or bronchitis, which I'd gotten every two years while I was in Las Vegas. Even just a lasting cough. Nothing, I've gotten nothing that I'm aware of that was either bacterial or viral. In almost four years now, th this wow. is the longest stretch I've ever gone in my life by orders of magnitude at this point. I mean, it's just, it's so long. Uh, that it's becoming it's becoming kind of a running joke with Siobhan and I because I've actually been wanting to get sick data so that I could see this immune response in action. And so I keep waiting. If, the, if it ever comes up, I'm going to rush to the hospital so that I can um, get my blood drawn <laughs> so I can catch, even if it was like a whooping cough or something. Like I, I want to actually capture that data. And so, yeah, I'm definitely convinced that there's a very strong role for lipoproteins with regard to uh, immu immunological response, particularly uh, to bacterial and viral uh, infections. And so you're specifically saying it's not the role of cholesterol that's offering that kind of protective or supportive injury prevention or on um, kind of damage control perspective or rejuvenation kind of support from a, an immune system perspective. You're suggesting it's actually that the boats, the kind of protein fat carrying boats the lipoproteins specifically the ldls that kind of carry that responsibility yes so they so I'll, I'll outline three real quick one is for example um a lot of bacteria does something called quorum sensing it's sort of uh where they send out a kind of probe if you will and um <laughs> lipoproteins can actually disrupt that process um uh, nadir dr nadir ali actually brought that up for example Another good example is that lipoproteins bind to pathogens as part of the clearance process. But probably my favorite is their um, antioxidant defense. So there's something known as alpha-tocopherol on board these lipoproteins, but you typically would know it as vitamin D. Well, for the longest time, I'd read in the literature things like, well, this is part of the lipoprotein's own antioxidant defense system. So that's kind of how it can travel around the bloodstream and hopefully fend off these free radicals. But then more and more, I kept thinking, wait a sec, they're, they may be looking at this backwards. That 
that antioxidant defense that actually protrudes the mem the um, the monolayer of the lipoprotein. In other words, it's outward bound, so that it can actually, once upon coming into contact with these pathogens, uh, sorry, more specifically, reactive oxygen species, it turns into a non-reactive product. In other words, your oxidative stress is actively being uh, pressed against these lipoproteins that have antioxidants on board. So in a sense, it's part of your oxidative response. It's part of how it is that it can make your body less oxidative, depending on uh, how many of those you have. And that's why I, I brought this up in a podcast last year, a fairly famous podcast, as I said, you know, before, I would have thought, given the same amount of oxidative stress in the body, before I started doing this research, I would assume I'd want less LDL particles than more, because oxidative LDL particles, when they're oxidized, are often associated with disease, particularly atherosclerosis. But you have to ask the question the right way. Is it the oxidation that's the problem? Or is it the lipoproteins that's the problem? Are you looking at the perpetrator? Or are you looking at the cops that are showing up at places where perpetrators infiltrate? Does that make sense? It does. And, and I think you're kind of leading us to, to kind of calling out the hypothesis uh, that you have specifically around you know, the roles of lipids. And I'd love to get into that. That, that. that makes so much sense to me, albeit, again, I'm a, I'm a citizen scientist too. But the idea that these things that we have are in our body that are present in all and every one of us to varying degrees, how they can innately serve a negative role and that we should have statins in order to reduce them just because we should. It's, it's never really sat well with me. So maybe we can, in, in the journey of getting to your hypothesis and kind of like fleshing out a little bit more, maybe you can help, help us understand why we are where we are today. Why is it that high cholesterol blood markers, specifically high LDLC, is labeled as you know that's the problem and if you have high ldl you must go on a high plant-based diet and you probably want to go on statins we have to reduce ldl at all costs because without that you're at a higher risk of heart disease help us understand the the suggested hypothesis that that hangs on and if there is good science to support that that's that's actually pretty easy and i've got a good analogy so First off, let's say that the only marker you're allowed to look at is LDL cholesterol. And the only outcome you're allowed to look at is um, cardiovascular disease. Then I would 100% concede right now you're going to find a correlation. Higher LDL cholesterol will be more likely associated to cardiovascular disease. Okay, now let's, let's take a step back and let me ask it this way is the only marker you could look at was BMI, body mass index, which is your height and your weight, right? And the only outcome you could look at was type two diabetes. That might seem very loose, but I could correctly say, hey, as BMI goes up, it's more and more likely that there's going to be a correlation with type two diabetes. But as you know, and as I hope most people know, understand the BMI, uh, BMI is very, inaccurate, particularly when you get into things like, say, body mass, mm -hmm. uh, as it's associated to lean mass versus fat mass. And so a better measurement would be, say, waist circumference to height. 
that would be a much better me measurement because then, of course, you could go down to the gym nearby and you're going to find that most people have a waist circumference that's half their height. And that's associated with greater longevity. But you wouldn't be wrong in saying, hey, even if that's a stronger marker, the BMI marker does still have a loose correlation with type 2 diabetes. But as we know, there are many people with low BMI who have type 2 diabetes. There are many people with high BMI who do not. So it's, not, it's basically not positive for us to look at what is really a weak marker of association, particularly when we know stronger markers of association. Mm -hmm. We already know what they are. So what's a stronger marker of association than LDL? Really quite a lot of things. For example, hyperinsulinemia is associated with cardiovascular disease. Uh, all of the markers for metabolic syndrome, so that includes both the waist-to-hip ratio, that includes hypertension, that includes low HDL and high triglycerides, which I'll get to in a moment, and high fasting glucose. But here's the thing about HDL, the so-called good cholesterol, and triglycerides, which, as I mentioned before, is really the cargo found on the boats. If HDL is high and triglycerides are low, then you find high LDL does not associate with high cardiovascular disease. And that might be worth repeating because this happens with low carbers. I have yet to find one study. In fact, I have a, a challenge you may already be familiar with. I call it the low carb cholesterol challenge, where I solicited people to send me any study that shows people with both a high LDL cholesterol and a high HDL cholesterol and low triglycerides. We would find in that population high rates of cardiovascular disease. And instead, I've only seen studies that show the reverse. So, how is it that we got to the point of thinking high LDL causes atherosclerosis? Honestly, in my opinion, I think it's by looking only singularly at just LDL and not looking at these other markers that I just mentioned that have a higher association with atherosclerosis. That's how you get there. So at the end of the day, I'm, I'm pleading with people to make a more qualitative look at the data, less of a quantitative one. Because you can run 1 million studies on BMI's association with type 2 diabetes. That doesn't make it a good marker. And it, for that matter, it doesn't make it causative. It doesn't talk about the mechanism. It just says there's a correlation between these two variables. Um, and you're trying to understand you know, the root cause or at least the mechanism. But am I right in, am I right in saying that LDL is present when, whenever there's uh, biopsies or whether, whenever there's kind of bypasses or any kind of surgery on the heart, where you typically find LDL in the plaques within, within these, you know, arteries is that's, that seems to be pretty common knowledge from Absolutely. cardiologists. Absolutely. But once again, are they the firemen or are they the fire? Mm. Or are they the, um, you know, are they the patients or are they the internists? Like, Here's, here's another way of looking at it. Is this a strategy? Is atherosclerosis not much different than, say, a scab that you develop, except it's on the inside of the body? Well, there's, there's an easy way to means test that. And it's one I point to all the time, which is really the end of the line, the balance sheet, which, I, which is called in the literature all-cause mortality. If having low LDL cholesterol meant you could cut out cardiovascular disease. And I'm telling you right now, you could. If, if you had, for example, a genetic disease um, that reduced your LDL so that you just didn't have them, right? So you don't, in the case of the firemen, you don't have the firemen. 
do you develop atherosclerosis? You don't. There's a good example would be, say, A-beta lipoproteinemia or hypo-beta lipoproteinemia. These people have extremely low to nearly no LDL cholesterol and therefore no LDL particles, and they are practically immune from heart disease. So do those people outlive us? They don't. They don't have longer lifespans. So you have to ask this key question, is there a trade-off? Is there a trade-off from taking away that mechanism we associate with the problem? Because it turns out that that's still the better alternative in general to what the other scenario is. So if you're not building atherosclerosis, then what? Do you have more exposure to, say, the hemodynamics of the blood? Uh, do you have more potential for things like cancer? As it happens, lower LDL is associated with higher rates of cancer. Doesn't mean that low LDL causes cancer, but it doesn't rule it out. So is there a trade-off in place? The one way we know is by looking at all-cause mortality. And thus far, I've not been able to find any example of somebody, any population that has genetically low LDL that has longer lifespans than the average of the uh, than the average of that population. And with with that work, Dave, because I know you've churned through quite a bit of data. What does the data suggest when you look at low LDL communities, aged communities? So not talking like the 20 or 30 year olds, but you know, seven, you know, 60, 70 year old plus uh, individuals with low LDL, do they have uh, is it suggested they have one lower risk of heart disease and two uh, lower risk of all cause mortality? What does the data so far tell you? So, as you may have heard, I've been working through the NHANES data set. It's a fantastic data set. It's around 40,000 people are eligible in that data set to examine. And yes, I've looked at the elderly population. I'm going to be honest, I didn't even look that much at heart disease because I was much more interested in all-cause mortality. It was the first time I was able to get raw data and work through uh, finding all-cause mortality data in particular. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out that there was a higher rate of death by cardiovascular disease, but that's the what you die of. What I'm caring about is the when you die. Mm -hmm. Is is So... Let me kind of emphasize what I mean by that and the what versus the when. Let's say that I put you on a cyanide diet. And in putting you on this diet, you said, this sounds dangerous. And I said, actually, it's not that dangerous because it reduces your chance of dying of all the top diseases by 99.999999%. That would technically be accurate because I killed you of one thing sooner than the other thing could, <laughs> right? Okay, so by the same token, if I don't die of cancer when I'm 75 and instead die of a heart attack at 95, then if there were a pill that could prevent my cancer, it would be technically accurate to say that pill increased my chance of dying of a heart attack. You see the problem here? Mm -hmm. Because, because it's, it's almost a function of age at that point. Right. Well, this is the problem of looking at only one outcome of mortality. It's, it's a serious problem because it's... A a little bit of a statistical uh, misnomer. You need to look at all mortality. Do do I live longer? If I live longer, then that's the first. That's the place where you want to start. So, in the case of the elderly, um, if you're die, if you're more likely to die of a heart attack because you have higher LDL, yet you live longer, is that a win or a loss? For me, that would be a win. Mm -hmm. I would 
my my dream scenario is I live a nice, healthy, long life. My life, my health span is very long, and then I keel over. <laughs> like of the ways I can go out, that's where that's how I want to do it. But the bigger question is, do these people live longer when they have higher LDL? You may already know the answer to this, but I'm not sure if your listeners do. Generally, higher LDL is associated with greater longevity, especially in the elderly. And in working through the NHANES data, whenever I found age parity, I would run that. I'd run that scenario. I'd want to see when I stratified the different levels of LDL, which group lived the longest. And actually the association, and I want to emphasize association because epidemiological studies are not proof of causation. They can help us knock down hypotheses or help form them, but they don't prove them. That said, the association of the lowest levels of LDL, such as like 80 or lower, which would be considered today super optimal, had the highest rate of death. They died at a, around 3% per year for everybody above 50. Um, that was sort of the mean average. Mm -hmm. For those with an LDL of, say, 80 to 100, it was around 2.5% per year. And everybody above 100, including at super high levels, would die at a rate of around 2% per year. Again, for everybody above age 50. And this is excluding statins, so there's no confounding of um, additional medical data, at least in that regard. So, yeah, I, I myself feel like this isn't proof positive that we should all be uh, proactively increasing our LDL. But I do think that if you're going to make the claim that high LDL is going to increase your chance of dying full stop, you've got to be able to have an answer to do this data, which is showing the opposite. And is there good science and when I say good science, science which shows that causation link between LDL and heart disease or the use of statins and the increase in lifespan. I mean, do we have, do we have good science? Because my understanding, I'm kind of leaning a witness here, but my understanding without, you know, being, you know, uh, a geek in in the literature uh, because I I don't have the time or, or or the the mindset to go through this stuff. But my understanding with folks that have is that the data is quite weak. The billions of dollars have been spent, but the conclusions and the statistical significance of the work that has been done to effectively villainize LDL in both the causation of heart disease and you know kind of reducing lifespan and there and also in addition how statins are somehow a healthy decision it just doesn't seem to stack up from my understanding have you is is that is that a fair representation of our current state of science as it, it as it supports or doesn't ldl and the use of statins well so first of all my usual qualifier i actually don't often speak very often on statins uh, the reason is not because I like or dislike statins. It's because I don't like statin data. So let me kind of, let me kind of illustrate that to some degree. Uh, my problem is there's a number of things as part of the methodology in conducting these trials that I think just wouldn't be acceptable to me. Uh, one example, for example, uh, one key example would be run-in periods. So they allow for a run-in period where the entire population that's going to be uh, potentially used in the trial will be on the drug for, say, two to, to four to six weeks, something along those lines. And in that period of time in the run-in, a number of people will abandon, 
probably those people that are abandoning it are going to be proportionally higher levels of those who are feeling side effects. Mm -hmm. So that the leftover amount after that run-in period then gets randomized. And therefore, you have a group that's left over that if they do end up in the intervention arm and actually end up going on that drug, that they are probably going to tolerate it well, which I think is the reason why we often see a uh, discordance between those people in these trials and the reported level of side effects and those people in the real world who, when they're getting statins, uh, reported a higher rate. Uh, so that's that's problem number one, and that's only just on side effects that don't seem to be uh, problematic for outcome on, say, something like uh, disability or death. We don't really know, unless there wasn't a run-in period, what that real outcome would have been. But there's another one that really bothers me, which is that a lot of these trials are ended arbitrarily. So a trial will be planned to go for, say, three years, but will be ended in, say, a year and a half. And my problem is that allows for uh, arbitrary selection of the best data within the span of time planned. But let me give you an example. Let's say you and I are betting on a stock and you plan to hold that stock at whatever price it's at until a year from now. But I get to play it differently. I get to wait until there's a really good day and then I can decide if I want to cash out right then. Mm -hmm. And then I get to take that to future clients and be like, yeah, I had a really great year up until February. They go, well, I want to know how your whole last year was. I'm like, yeah, we're only going to count it to February. And let me tell you, February was amazing. <laughs> you see the problem, right? Like the, to, to me, if you're, if you're testing a hypothesis, then you should have as much of the study design uh, laid out and follow it from beginning to end. And really, that should be agreed upon and set in stone at the point at which you're initiating it. But there's one other serious problem, which isn't anybody's fault, but it is going to be with, say, uh, industry-funded studies, particularly around a product. And the problem is, is that if a study fails at reducing mortality, but succeeds at lowering LDL cholesterol, it will be considered a failed drug trial, and it doesn't count. If, on the other hand, a trial actually ends up having a successful reduction in cardiovascular disease mortality, even if it's not all-cause mortality. But it also is um, reducing LDL. That counts towards the total. So it's you see the problem. There's, there's not really a balance of the data, and a lot of what's going to emerge to show up in these meta-analyses studies are going to just be the best examples that were findable because those are the ones that are going to go to market and those are the ones that they want to make use of. And so in that sense, I, I just, I'm not as happy about how the data stands to be able to make a conclusion when it comes to things like uh, cholesterol lowering medication. Would you, would there be any scenario? And, and, and I, I guess we're going to get to this in the next question, but would there be any scenario when someone says I've got high LDL, Okay, you look at the other markers, but generally, just as a knee-jerk response, if someone says I've got high LDL, do you feel it's appropriate to say, okay, we, we must focus on lowering that? Is that is that an appropriate response from physicians, GPs, people working in hospitals that just continue to have that knee-jerk response? And individuals in you know, Joe, just Joe public individuals will have that same response. If something is out of range in the red then we've got to take some preventative or intervention action. 
is do you feel the same way or do you actually say let's look into that there can actually be some value of your ldl levels i'm just trying to understand where you sit emotively and scientifically with the idea of high ldl well this is always a place where i can get into a lot of trouble because there's there's what i would tell other people there's how i would be myself and the problem is how I would be myself, anything that I say will get me into trouble <laughs> because there will be people who will react that I'm effectively advising others to do the same. So I can't quite answer the second part of that. I'll answer the first part. The most common question I'll get is, should I be worried? Somebody will give me their LDL numbers. They'll be like, it's crazy high. Should I be worried? An even tougher spot is I just had an MI. Um, a myocardial infarction. I'm now in the zone of secondary prevention. Should I be worried with these levels of LDL? And my honest to goodness answer is, I don't know. I don't know because I'm in the process of exploring and trying to understand it better. I do know this though. I, I know that even the most stalwart uh, pro-lipid hypothesis person, when you're in the situations that I get into, where I get into deeper conversations with them, whether it's publicly on Twitter or in social media or deeper in a personal conversation, they will concede an important point that I think everyone needs to keep in mind. The point is that not all <clears throat> the point is that not all LDL lowering is the same. In other words, it's not as simple as whatever actions you take to lower your LDL will have the same general outcomes. There is possibly a case to be made for statins, and it may be the pleiotropic factors, such as being anti-inflammatory. For example, I have a, a good friend who's a low-carb doctor who actually is probably anti-statins in every regard, except in one. He does feel that there is a potential benefit to statins following, say, an MI for about four to five months. And for his own family and friends, he would advise that. He would say, if you've just had a heart attack, there's actually strong data to suggest that statins, not any cholesterol-lowering drug, but statins in particular, would be beneficial in the wake of that attack. But then past that point, it doesn't matter. So he's an example of somebody who actually uh, gives advice directly in this regard, and even so would be kind of considered uh, by many to be um, extraordinarily controversial because he would allow for the people past the four or five months to not be on statin therapy, even though they were secondary prevention. And it's possible that he's right. It's possible that that makes sense. Truth be told, I don't really, I have not really done a lot of research on the secondary prevention side, but I still have to solve the problem of getting better data on the primary prevention, which is to say somebody who's never had uh, any heart event of any kind in the first place. Okay. Okay. And I appreciate the response. So again, it's easy, it's it's easy for someone to or want more importantly to want to hear a definitive answer. Uh, but it sounds like we haven't yet reached that point scientifically. But why don't we talk a little bit about your hypothesis? And I'm not entirely sure what you call it. Maybe you can explain if it has a name, but more importantly, the role of lipoproteins, cholesterol in the context of within these these kind of cargo boats and how perhaps in a low-carb diet, your, your LDL numbers, HDL, triglyceride numbers are likely going to look different and how, one, you, you, you think 
that serves a role, serves a purpose given your diet, and two, why you're not necessarily overly stressed about that profile? Sure. Uh, well, first off, it's fairly straightforward. And I think maybe the best way to set this up is to talk about what everyone generally hears about the ketogenic diet and then sort of my addendum that I would add to it. Most people hear that once you stop consuming carbs, you intentionally bring carbs way down and you move towards a higher fat diet with low carbs, that actually you're now going to be powered more by ketones, which is why it's called the ketogenic diet. And all of your fatty acids are going to get converted into ketone bodies, and now that will be what's fueling you. And that's actually mostly not true. <laughs> Certainly, you do have a proportion of fatty acids that are broken down into ketones, and they will power you, but they are um, proportionately more diverted towards your brain because your brain does need to be fueled by something much more than, say, fatty acids because fatty acids don't easily cross what's known as the blood-brain barrier. So ketones are very vital for um, continuing to fuel your brain in the absence of glucose fueling your brain. But in truth, below the neck, the vast majority of energy delivered is in, in a ketogenic diet is going to be direct delivery of those fatty acids, fatty acids that are never broken down into ketones. And there's really two general methods for which those fatty acids are directly delivered to your cells all throughout your body. One of those is through something known as free fatty acids, or what in the literature they would call non-esterified fatty acids, but I'm just going to call it free fatty acids. Free fatty acids are constantly throughout the day, whether you're on a carb diet or a fat diet, they're constantly being released from your fat cells, known as your adipocytes. And as they're getting released, they often get taken up by nearby tissues, um, oftentimes directly adjacent. So for example, muscle tissue that's nearby a fat cell could be making use of the fatty acids that it's releasing and so forth. But a lot of those fatty acids that are released, really around half, ultimately make their way to the liver. And when they do, the liver will then end up putting them together into this storage form of fatty acids known as triglycerides. It's called triglycerides because it's three fatty acids um, that are grouped together, esterified to a glycerol backbone. But basically, all you need to remember is these things are like big motherships. Those free fatty acids, they're small. These lipoprotein boats that carry the triglycerides, they're just packed full of, I mean, huge amount of energy in each of these. And so your liver starts just constantly rele releasing these um, boats that are carrying around these triglycerides. And one key boat, the one it most releases is known as a VLDL. And a VLDL is the stage before an LDL. So VLDL is really fat full of triglycerides. And it's parking all of that energy into all of your tissues. And interestingly, most of that parking is parking it back into those fat cells. That may seem like a silly, you know, circular thing, but it actually makes a lot of sense from an engineering standpoint. If I'm, if I'm working on my right arm a lot and only working on my right arm, then it's okay because eventually the, the energy in my body will continue, continually get redistributed to those fat cells in my right arm. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's a it's a 
it's a redistribution strategy, I guess you could say. But if I'm powered primarily by fat and I'm getting a lot of my energy from those free fatty acids and also from those VLDLs, there's going to be more successive LDLs. And if there's more successive LDLs that have cholesterol on board, that would explain why there's more cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, in particular when I'm being powered by fat. Okay, okay. So VLDL really is a kind of the the initial cargo out from the liver. It's it's depositing its triglycerides where necessary. It's got some cholesterol in there, not necessarily using a lot of it. Uh, at some point, it it morphs into I'm not I don't know if I'm using the right word, but becomes LDL based on its distribution uh, of contents. And you're saying if you're kind of fat adapted and your driven your metabolism is now burning through fat versus having this ready supply of glucose through high-carb diets, then there's there's an importance for these cargo ships to be free-flowing and probably more of as they're distributing around your body, distributing that energy. And LDL is that successive form of VLDL. Is that correct? That's that's right. And, and so um, to give some context as to, to lead to the other part of your question, why I would feel differently about risk in this scenario is that while the ketogenic diet wasn't that popular before, we do at least have the profiles of people who had uh, similar lipids to those people who were on a low-carb diet. They were much rarer then, but they were still around. So the question is, were there a lot of people who not only had high LDL, but also had the two other markers that are common with a low-carb profile, which includes high HDL and low triglycerides, which you heard me talk about earlier. I typically call this the triad. And does this triad associate with higher levels of atherosclerosis, the heart disease? For that matter, does it associate more with death? And the answer to that is no, it's the opposite. It associates with greater longevity by a lot. It's actually quite substantial. The enhanced data that I worked with, if you, if you dial in those three markers, if you dial in high HDL, high LDL, and low triglycerides, you have overall greater longevity across the board. It's really quite impressive. Uh, and I should actually, I'll have more graphs than I already have had before. I've already had several up from like Salt Lake and uh, Low Carb Seattle that I present on some, but I've even done more and more analysis given feedback that I've gotten online uh, to try to look at this from different directions. And I'm genuinely stunned just how much this correlation existed. And this is before low carb came around. So then the question has to be asked, if you go low carb and you get this same profile, is it likely to be beneficial? And I have reason to believe that yes, it is because probably a lot of the same things with the prior profile, even if they didn't call it low carb at the time, had many you know, dietary habits in common. And on top of that, there are many metabolic outcomes that are negative that are associated with low HDL and high triglycerides, whatever your LDL level was. And that includes heart disease. What a lot of people don't know is that that reverse of the triad, where you have low HDL and high triglycerides, 
that's already also got a name in the literature. It's known as atherogenic dyslipidemia. And atherogenic dyslipidemia is highly correlated to heart disease. So what happens when you have the flip version of it? Do you have reverse atherosclerosis? That's what we're looking to find out. We want to get more long-term follow-up data on those people we see the very high levels of LDL with. And while we haven't touched on it yet, there's a particular phenotype that exemplifies this triad extraordinarily, um, which I like to call lean mass hyperresponders. They tend to be at the highest ends of LDL you can imagine, but also with extremely high HDL and extremely low triglycerides. Talk to me about that. I think, are you one of those individuals? I, think- I barely don't make the cut points, but okay. that's, I think, because I don't have as much fitness. As it happens, I just had my blood drawn this morning, <laughs> and but that's not too uncommon. I think I'm up to my 119th blood draw in the last four oh, years. Wow. Um, the things I do for science. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> uh, the I think I took my LDL this morning. I think my LDL was 270, 270 milligrams per deciliter. Yeah, that's pretty high. It is pretty high, and for anybody who's not that familiar with LDL cholesterol, the guidelines currently have it that you should have it under 100. So not only do I have high levels, but in, also in the guidelines, they say that if you have an LDL of uh, 190 or greater, you should be on the maximally dosed statin. No other qualifier at all. Just if you have an LDL of 190 or higher, it's it's typically assumed that you have familial, familial hypercholesterolemia, which is to say that you must have a genetic disease that's bringing it to those levels. And my research has definitely blown that up for me. Uh, I, I can move my cholesterol back below 190 at any point. Like it, you and I can make a bet right now, and you probably wouldn't take me up on it, that in a few days I could have my cholesterol down into, say, the 130s. And probably a few days after that I could have it into the 70s or 80s. And it's, it's all by changing my metabolic pathway, going from carbs over to fat. So with that in mind, let's talk about, about lean mass hyperresponders. These these people will have LDL, like the starting point we have the LDL at is 200 and higher. And I know many now, and I mean at least a couple dozen, who have an LDL of at least 400 or higher. And these are levels that absolutely scare the heck out of their doctors. And understandably so, they, as their doctors will tell them, they've never seen anything like this before. But by the same token, nobody's ever seen these kinds of LDL profiles with these kinds of HDL and triglyceride profiles coupled together. And that's what's exciting to me as an engineer. Seeing all three of these axes align across all these nationalities and ethnicities and genders and ages. And I'm sure you've now seen pictures of lean mass hyperresponders. The vast majority of them look like like our lean mass hyperresponder Facebook group, it looks like it's a fitness group. It looks like it's just a whole bunch of people who are into body sculpting uh, because a lot of people end up in this profile are people who are very not only powered by fat, but very lean. And to get back to the prior model, to just geek out a step further, if you're very lean, you have less fat mass, then you have to traffic those boats more. And if you have to traffic them more, then you end up with more successive LDL uh, particles and therefore more LDL cholesterol. So it actually all makes sense against this energy model. That makes sense. And you talk about HDL and triglycerides. Um, I understand that these, I understand that there seems to be more um, 
support and agreement across communities of cardiologists and physicians around having high triglycerides and low HDL and suggesting that that's a marker of some metabolic dysfunction. Can you talk to talk to that in a second? So let's park LDL for a moment. If we if we just look at low HDL and high triglycerides, I don't think there's much argument that that is an unhealthy profile. Is that right? I don't know. I don't know so much that there's not. I don't know that there's argument, but I do think it's it's underappreciated. I've certainly I've certainly had many different discussions with many different people uh, who feel like that's not as big of a deal if your LDL is really low. Right. Like if your LDL is, say, between 50 and 70, then you just don't even need to pay attention to your HDL and triglycerides. Um, and that's, to me, I think that's very unfortunate. I think that there's very strong data to show that that's not the case at all. That that's it's very concerning to me if I see a family member with high triglycerides. I don't even like to see triglycerides above 100. I prefer my whole family have triglycerides below 100. But if you say have triglycerides at 200 and your HDL is in the 30s, I don't care what your LDL is. I think that's something worth paying attention to, uh, particularly the more that heads in that direction. Would, would that be indicative of diabetes or some kind of insulin issue, some kind of energy management issue if you've got very that kind of profile? Very often. It, it could also... Um, be a challenge event of some kind, such as a uh, an infection. But I would I would bet over ninety percent of the people right at this moment in time who have the profile I just described are um, are having that because of metabolic dysregulation. Uh, usually it's usually it's things like being past your personal fat threshold, having insulin resistance, especially in your muscle tissue. Uh, it's I mean, the, the gold standard is pretty much the presence of something known as ectopic fat, which is just another way of saying fat being deposited in tissues not designed to store fat. The tissues designed to store fat are your adipose cells. And if your adipose, you know, is not trafficking, staging and pacing your fat supply, um, you've got a problem, that, a very big one, and it's something you want to tackle. Okay. Okay. And one last question on on this kind of uh, triad, triglycerides. Um, this this is somewhat of paradoxical. Maybe you can explain it. But you talk about on a fat adapted diet, you're going to be producing more VLDL, more and therefore more successive LDL as you transport and deposit triglycerides into your into your cells. And that makes sense because you're going to be fueled by that versus the you know availability of glucose, which will be lower on a low carb diet, then why is triglycerides in the blood low when we're that's using actually, more? That's a very common question. I'm actually glad you asked that. So, so without doubt, my energy model supposes that you are without question trafficking more triglycerides than say somebody who's, you know, a, the same health level, but is on a carb centric diet. The catch is that your uptake and use is higher because you're powered by it. That's now your primary source of energy. So we could use an easy analogy, which is its sister substrate being glucose. 
do you think somebody who's powered on a carb-centric diet looks good if their glucose levels are, say, 300? <laughs> no. Uh, it's, uh, there's an, there are definitely athletes we know who eat a heck of a lot more carbs and you know than we did when we were healthy in the same situation, but their blood glucose is super low. Mm. Why? Because their use and uptake is way higher. Okay, so because you're trafficking more and using more, but instead of it just going for going for the ride, uh, sitting in your VLDL, sitting in your LDLs, but not being used because there's available glucose, you're trafficking lots, but everything's being taken up. Everything's being used because that's the primary energy source the body's going to favor in in that metabolic state. That's right, and and let's actually turn it around for a sec. Why is high triglycerides such a bad sign? For metabolic dysregulation well it's for the same reason that ectopic fat is building up typically if your triglycerides are high i posit it's because your vldls that are carrying those triglycerides can't find the parking mm. you're you're past your personal fat threshold or at least to the affinity level of what is the healthy adipose tissue degree that it can use that so there's nowhere to dock it so you have more buildup in the blood now, what they would say is because this is associated, because VL, high VLDLs are associated with atherosclerosis, that it must be the VLDLs that are directly causing the atherosclerosis. But I would argue it may very well be a symptom more than the root cause. That actually, no, you're, you're in a situation where you probably have other signs, things like hyperinsulinemia and ectopic fat that are uh, showing this larger metabolic dysregulation that's creating the problems in the first place. Okay, I, I I tell you what, David it does it makes a lot of logical sense. Um, <laughs> I can't go beyond that because I you know I don't I don't work with hearts and I'm not a scientist. But logically, uh, your argument stands up. Are there other people that are in support of this hypothesis? There are. It's a it it's been cathartic because it's it's a slow process to get a number of people up to speed to the degree where I could say here. I now feel like I could hand you my presentation deck and you can present the lipid energy model for me. But I would say there's probably about three or four dozen people now who are at the point where I feel like, oh, you could present as well as I could. You could write a paper on it as well as I could. And so it's a, it's a process because part of it is already having to think about it a different way. See, if it's already hard to think that lipoproteins aren't themselves independently atherogenic, as in they're ready to cause trouble. They're already, like if you modify them a certain way, you oxidize them, well then now they're going to smash around in your arteries and create a problem. And it's already hard to say, well, no, there actually might be a bigger story to this. They're actually, this may actually be part of the body's um, process of the immune response. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the issue is the energy model is addressing a scenario for where LDL particles are high for a pragmatic reason that may have nothing to do with the buildup of disease that we often see that other association of higher LDL with, which typically comes with say the higher triglycerides and lower HDL. And that's why I've sought that information in particular, because I want to I want to separate the two. I want to be able to see if there is such a thing as a healthy lipid metabolism with high LDL. Here's a better way of asking it. Do we have any evidence of any kind anywhere for which a healthy vascular system 
is developing higher rate of atherosclerosis when there's high LDL, specifically a healthy vascular system. And I've not come across that yet. I typically find even in things like the genetic studies, they're using uh, genes that uh, like SNP, single nucleotide polymorphisms, that also have an association of cellular uptake dysfunction. Uh, and what I'm, what I'm wanting to see is I'm wanting to see high LDL in whatever context showing that when you've got a healthy vascular system, you see the atherosclerosis anyway. And I just, I've not seen that yet. I'm looking for it. But in an unhealthy vascular system or a, uh, some level of metabolic dysregulation, high LDL can be a problem. Is that right? So I've, I've heard you say previously, if you've got high LDL, but you've got the other two things that we've just said, so maybe high triglycerides and low HDL. And in addition to that, I've heard you talk about C-reactive protein and I, you know, markers of inflammation. If you have that, you know, quartet, um, that would be an issue. LDL in that context could suggest there's something going wrong. But again, it may be a symptom. It may not be the it. driver is probably the better way I'd want to put it. So LDL is absolutely a participant in atherosclerosis. Absolutely. The question is, is the body intentionally trying to make use of the LDL particles because it still sees that as a better alternative than what would happen without it? That's the key question to ask. So seeing high LDL with high inflammation and high triglycerides, low HDL could be indicative of something going on inside that needs further investigation. There could be issues with your heart, heart disease. We, let's take a look at that. But what you're not saying is going one step further and saying it is the high LDL that is the, the cause, but it could be a good marker in that context. It could be a good marker for detecting that there's a problem in that context. If I if I see somebody with atherogenic dyslipidemia, actually, I'm not even sure how much LDL would be that relevant to me as much as the HDL and triglycerides. Okay. Um, so the that's the hard to hear. Here, that's hard to hear, Dave, because we've just obsessed about LDL for you know 30 to 50 years. That's all Joe Public have heard is that LDL is the bad guy and. We must, we must get that marker, if nothing else, when we test our bloods. Uh, of course. Uh, and it's understandable, both you and I, we've grown up in that environment. I, I don't know that there'll ever be a point, even if I came into stronger and stronger evidence to suggest um, that it's not as concerning. And, and let me re-qualify. I'm by no means anywhere close to what I would say certain that it's not concerning. But... I doubt I would ever be on a scale of one to 10 to zero, where I'm like, no, not concerned at all, no big deal. And I think a lot of that comes from having decades of seeing Crestor commercials and Lipidor commercials and seeing my dad's dad, uh, you know, talking about how his doctor was worried about cholesterol. For that matter, just knowing 99% of doctors around the world right now would be concerned about the LDL cholesterol levels that I have right at this moment. Mm. That's all of that awareness drives me harder to try to get to the answer of this question. But the relevancy of whether or not LDL particles are a part of the atherosclerotic process does not de facto 
there's a there's a term there's a Latin term for this that if uh, my buddy Nick Mailer were here he'd probably uh, emphasize. But that uh, uh, ergo hoc I think is how it goes. But basically, you come to the conclusion that it must be the cause because it's involved. And the issue that I have is getting back to the qualitative data, going all the way back to near the beginning of the podcast. I was saying having 1 million studies on BMI associated with type 2 diabetes doesn't make BMI the cause of type 2 diabetes. So until we have better studies that look at all the markers, and this, by the way, includes cholesterol-lowering medication. If we have cholesterol-lowering medication studies that look at the triad, I would be very excited for that. They did it one time that I'm aware of, and it was for the 4S study, and that was like a decade and a half ago. And it showed people who had high HDL and low triglycerides not getting a benefit, not getting a benefit from the uh, cholesterol-lowering medication. Or I'm sorry, I may have to turn it around. The control group that had high LDL and high HDL uh, and low triglycerides did not show detriment. I'll put it that way. Okay. And to the best of my knowledge, that never got repeated. That's it. So in the 15 years since we saw that, the statin trialists never sought to stratify by that again, which I think is not a good look, I think. You know, I mean, if that really is a low-risk group that may not be as much in need of statins, shouldn't we know that, right? And let's see how we can replicate it through lifestyle. Exactly. So the question is, would you rather take the drug or change the lifestyle? And I, I would fully respect that people should be able to have that choice. But let's first have an, the let's first have the choice be informed. Let's let's actually get the information, get the data, and find out for ourselves. That shouldn't actually be incumbent on people who are not, you know, part of these statin trials. If we've already found a low risk group, why not further investigate that? I agree wholeheartedly. I, but I think it's it's people like you who don't have a dog in a fight that can approach this without the um, institutional wisdom driving your decision, not wanting to be rejected from your community, not wanting to lose your endorsements or lose your funding. Like you have independence, and I think, and a fresh mind and a a perspective which has not been indoctrinated for one another a word and i'm not suggesting there's 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 malice or ill intention here but when we're all singing from the same hymn sheet it could be difficult to challenge your your value system your worldview and i think it's people like you that are, are looking at this from a different angle and just saying hang on a minute some of this doesn't make sense let me try and understand it with no real negative detriment to yourself by going against it you know the status quo or at least it doesn't look like there's there's necessarily a blowback for you. Is there any blowback? Like in you doing this work, are you <laughs> you receiving any negativity in your life that you're struggling with? Oh, I, I certainly I certainly received my share. I quite literally uh, just before this interview was on a lengthy exchange on Twitter, and it, it's it's very ironic. There's I try not to be too amused by it, but it's kind of amusing in the sense that there are people who are concerned when I'm expressing my concerns about like the data and I'm trying to reach for better data and I'm engaging people of different viewpoints to best understand where they're coming from, that they say, this is, this is frustrating because you have 33,000 followers and there are many people who follow you who take this as you've disproven the lipid hypothesis full stop. 
and are acting on that information, are not taking those statins and so on and so forth. To which I constantly respond, look, just as I said in this podcast, I'm not making that statement. I'm, you know, what I would call cautiously optimistic, but that's another way of saying, and not by any means certain, but feeling pretty good in this context of a metabolic reason for higher LDL. Mm -hmm. But the only reason I have the 33,000 followers is because there's no point in which I've represented myself any differently than I've been this entire time. The, the, the only reason people are following my work is because I do what to me is the minimum scientifically. Like I, I try to be transparent about my hypotheses before I execute my experiments, then I execute my experiments. And when my hypothesis turns out to be right, that generates excitement. It generates excitement for me, that's for sure. Mm. But it also generates excitement when I'm wrong. But that, but part of the reason I announced my hypothesis isn't even for other people. It's for me. It's to keep me honest. And the same goes for trying to engage with people of a different viewpoint. I'm not anxious to just try to hang out in the echo chamber. Quite the opposite. I'm trying to find outside wherever it is that I can find people of different disciplines, of different um, opinions that can bring new information to light. In many ways, I like to joke, which isn't really a joke, but I'm proactively constantly trying to seek to falsify my hypothesis because that's easier to do. It's only after you try really hard to hypothesize, to falsify and you just fail over and over again. Does it actually have some real legs? Because it's not good. Yeah, that to me is what science is. That this is, and this is why like I get a bit frustrated with the cholesterol lowering medication data is once again, I don't blame industry for wanting to keep it under wraps. That's what industry will always do. Whether it's, whether it's, you know, Pfizer or Coca-Cola, they're going to want to keep things as controlled as possible. But that said, that to me is not really good science. I want independent verification. Why, why not have independent parties look at, say, the data that the CTT has total control over? Why is there only meta-analyses that are allowed to show a positive light because it's coming through the one organization that is kind of almost, you know, an advocacy arm of that side of it? That's that's my problem. Statins could be the best thing ever. They could be the worst thing ever. I don't know because I don't know about the data. Hmm. For me, I want to practice the exact opposite of that. I, I Whenever I have the time, I try to put my data out in uh, spreadsheets and so forth and make it archivable on the site. Because I want to be, because if people can find problems with my data, in particular in the way that I execute the experiment, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. I want to improve and get better at making these things happen. And so in that regard, that's maybe the one thing that I would say I've gotten a little bit cynical on is before I'd gotten into doing this, I really sort of thought that the medical field and, you know, including nutrition, I just, I thought that there was a lot more methodical in its execution of science. And I, I don't know, I've been a little disenchanted, particularly lately. I, I really thought that there would be not only more undertaking of this, but I thought that there would be a lot more applauding of this process uh, for people like me who really want to get this involved. Mm. I, I think I also am disenchanted. At least it's, it's easy when you're um, absorbing the information from a community such as uh, carnivore, low carb, LCHA, uh, LCHF, um, keto type communities of which I'm spending more time listening to. And they all seem to be disenfranchised, seem to be frustrated with, you know, the 
the growing dependence on epidemiology, God, I can't speak today, epidemiology <laughs> and observational studies and how, yeah, there just seems to be a lot of judgment um, to what seems to be flawed science, yet that flawed science has sensationalized claims put out into the media, maybe not through the fault of the scientist or the researcher, but nonetheless, the media have taken taken a run at it, taken and cherry-picked part of the conclusion or the abstract that they like and just gone full throttle on social media. And now it's it's now fact, right? It, it spreads and people within their own echo chambers just continue to reinforce their own opinion. But here's, here's, a, here's a question I have for you around like echo chambers and communities and cults is anyone who is not in a low carb community who just wants to you know have a, a relaxed life where you know all you know all is available to them i'm just going to go standard omnivore diet i'm going to have what i want if it fits your macros type thing it's all about a calorie deficit um and you get a lot of that i listen to people that you know strongly uh hold that as the the, the kind of gold standard of weight management and health management and they will scorn and, and look judgmentally at the low carb community or the keto community saying, you know, people bitch and moan about the vegan guys, but hey, the keto guys are just the same. Everyone wants to identify as keto. Everyone wants to identify as carnivore. They want to make themselves known as that person who does that diet. Um, and it can be just as dogmatic, just as hopeful, just as wishful. Um, they, they want to believe what they want to believe and they'll find ways in which to do that. And I'm not saying that what I've just said, I believe to be true, but I can understand as someone who's a little skeptical or, or maybe even completely outside of that community, looks at that and goes, oh, this just feels like another cult brewing. What do you feel about that? Because clearly you, I've Ivor Cummins, uh, you know, Paul Saladino, Brian Sanders, you go through the list, Mark Sisson. Low, the low carb community is building traction, not just for weight loss, but wellness, health. And I can't help but to hear these arguments and say it's compelling. It makes sense intuitively, scientifically, and evolutionarily. Yet I can also find myself saying, "Oh, I, I sound a little bit, a little bit cold like myself." Do you know what I mean? How, how do you, how do you, how do you manage that? Like wanting to describe what you think is the right choices, yet not coming across like you're trying to be part of this community, which is the community first, not necessarily science and the health of others first? Well, first of all, I think there's absolutely some validity to those statements. Uh, I've, I'm generally pretty good about maintaining an overall positive demeanor to where I'm not going to call out people, even individuals uh, or communities to an extent, so long as there's, it's not hitting certain nerves. The, the nerves that get hit, which you've already seen a little bit in this uh, discussion, is I, I'm not a fan of opaqueness. I really want transparency, particularly if they're from institutions that pride themselves on science. For those people, I'm going to hold to a higher account. For communities, I, I don't really remark on it too much. In fact, I generally kind of avoid the diet debate in general, which may seem odd given that I'm obviously featured quite a bit uh, within the low-carb community. Um, in terms of my research with cholesterol and certainly with the fact that I myself am on a ketogenic diet. And I'm certainly an advocate within my family uh, for those people who are type 2 diabetic that 
I would like them to consider doing a low carb diet, but not ruling out other means of doing it, such as like if they can do, you know, calorie restriction and so forth. It's just that I think a ketogenic diet is really easy relatively compared to a lot of other diet plans. Uh, now, all of that said, is there potential for a cultish behavior? Is there uh, a number of people who are on the extremist side? Can, you know, are there uh, YouTube's a good example? For a while, there were a lot of lambasting of vegan YouTubers that I think well-deservedly has been kind of levied to some of the uh, YouTubers on the keto side in some cases because they get a bit inflammatory themselves. Um, and in that sense, yeah, can totally acknowledge it. But at, by the same token, this is just what's hap This is what happens with any community that grows is it grows and grows and grows. There's going to be more factions that kind of snap off and become sort of their own uh, version in one way or another. That's happened with the vegan community with like the raw food movement and fruitarians and so forth. There's um, there's the same thing in the low carb side. There's now a very large and growing carnivore community. Uh, there's this keto AF that's kind of growing. There's actually a vegan keto. One of my uh, favorite people who's also vegan is uh, Kiri Dayulis, who does a ketogenic diet. She's type one diabetic and does successfully does a vegan ketogenic diet. And that to me is a good thing. It's, it's actually, it's neat because if all of these are ultimately solutions for people in their health, and it's helping us get to the goal of people being healthier. That's something I consider positive. And so the one thing I'm going to give the big, you know, back pat on here is technology. Uh, I'm obviously biased because I'm a technologist, but thank you, Internet. If it weren't for the Internet, who knows how many people would be going by the existing guidelines, which as they stand and within the existing environment that we had a uh, food industry. I think I could argue has not been working for us. I think that we've needed to get better about taking ownership of our own health and becoming more educated and then also uh, relying on people we trust who themselves are doing the same thing. And I think that that's being pro and I think that's really helping out in terms of ways that I can see personally uh, in the low carb movement with people I know myself. Uh, take, for example, my dad and my sister, both of whom before I went low carb. Uh, were hypertensive. And my dad was well on his way to not only type two, like he already was type two diabetic, but on top of that, he was going to start having to take insulin. And now he's functionally cured. His A1C, I think his last A1C is uh, 5.8. So he's right at the edge of pre-diabetic. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, his glucose is way more under control. He actually sends it to me each day. He also sends me his blood pressure each day. He's now off his, um, his blood pressure medication. And is just looking fantastic. And I'm, I'm heartened by that fact. But, you know, do I think that there's problems that still have to be addressed? Yeah, for sure. But again, that's kind of the internet overall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the reason I ask this, Dave, is I, I, I find myself sounding similar. I find myself getting so enthusiastic by the value proposition from a wellness perspective around low carb and how I think we just lent too far into refined carbs and sugars. And as a result, it really ballooned our, our carb numbers up and dropping it down to a more realistic and more evolutionary consistent 
value I think is productive. And therefore, I can't help but to, you know, make that my position. Anyone who wants to have a discussion around nutrition and its impact on our, our health, wellness, mindset, I can't help but having a discussion around low carb saying, I think it, it can add value to almost everyone. That being said, it's easy if you're if you're not listening to the people I listen to to say actually vegan diet sounds pretty bang on to me. Have all these people saying how amazing they feel and yada yada yada. And there's other other groups that will will claim similar things. So I think for as much as the internet's a good thing, I think it's also causing incredible confusion because now there are many different ways to skin a cat, and not all of those are effective. Yeah, they're all being claimed to be effective. And I'm not asking you to solve for that now on this discussion, but it is. It is confusing. Many people that I know listen to what I say and say that kind of makes sense, Steve. And I heard you're kind of dabbling with more meat and kind of kind carnivore esque. Yet, like everyone else I speak to, that sounds a bit ridiculous. So, I'm not quite sure who to believe right now. Well, let me let me add to that because look, we we've effectively experienced two different things, and I think one to me is emerging as the better alternative. So before technology brought us the internet. We had a period of time, late 70s, 80s, certainly the 90s to a large degree, for which we've said, hey, let's have guidelines around food. And let's also see uh, the food industry kind of coalesce around those guidelines to some degree. And the outcome of that was a fairly large scale experiment before there was a lot of capability to get peer to peer information you know, to have like the forums and social media discussing alternatives to what seems to be the overall uh, best uh, best in practice way in which everybody should be eating, you know, low fat, uh, higher carb, balanced, et cetera. But of course, almost somebody really ate that way. There was really a lot of inter uh, injection of other things that came about. Well, I have family right now that are on a low carb diet, not because of me, but because they have friends who adopted a low carb diet because their family members did it. I would have never gotten them to do it because it's as um, Ken Berry would say, it's the powdered butt syndrome. If a family member ever powdered your butt, they're not going to listen to you on something like health advice or pretty much anything expert level. Right? So the, the problem is the problem is that when you do have a sort of monolithic guideline that you say we're pro we're we're confident that this is what it is and it's pretty one size fits all, then you already have an issue in that there's not a lot of ways to challenge it if it comes through a kind of bureaucratic source and there's you know any number of politics and so forth involved. There's ultimately a small group of people making decisions for a very large number of people. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm not afraid of this factionalization. I'm not afraid of, for that matter, I'm not afraid of people going on the wrong diet because they experience the cult-like effect and then stumble and then go, oh man, this isn't working for me at all. And then they ultimately discover the right diet. But this time around, they're putting more effort into learning what it is that they need to know to execute it properly. That's not what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of people feeling as if there's the one true way and told over and over again that that's what they need to do. Even if they and don't this, feel good. Right. And then that's my problem is I don't, I don't feel, and I've stated this publicly many times over, I don't feel keto is a one size fits all. 
uh, if I've told my own niece, um, who want to be on a plant-based diet, like specifically, she wants to be on a plant-based diet for ethical reasons. And I said, I told, she asked me, she says, do you really feel like I should just be on a keto diet? Is it just better than a plant-based diet? And I said to her, I don't know. Genuinely, I don't know. I just know this. I know that if you are going to be on a plant-based diet, I do want you to be very mindful of nutrients because I believe me personally, I believe a lot of people who don't make it on a plant-based diet, not all of them, it's a lot of them that don't make it are not watching after nutrition enough. So make sure you give it a good try. But I'm fortunate that she consulted me at least to be able to kind of lead her in that direction. She might've done it on her own without doing that. And so th this is, and this is just kind of the issue is metabolism is a complex thing. Mm. Nu nutrition is a complex thing. And we're not even, we're nowhere close. I don't care what anyone says. We're nowhere close to figuring out everything that we need and in what proportions because it's so context dependent. <laughs> so many different factors. It's, I, I like in biochemistry to just kind of a large combination of recipes going on inside your body. And so the different things that make up the different recipes, that's on you. That's what you happen to bring in. And unfortunately, you don't have the perfect accounting of what's needed and what isn't, right? And so in, in that sense, I think we, we're great as machines because we can really go on a lot of different diets. The question is, what diets do we know aren't working for us? And while I couldn't extract exactly what things are bad and in what proportions, I think I can safely say what's been going on the last 25 years hasn't been working for us last 30 years. Uh, it's so I'm glad that there seems to be a lot of health benefits and gains that I've observed, not just in the local community, but within my own family. And so in that sense, yeah, I, I can understand why somebody would be an advocate for low carb, but for that matter, just an advocate for seeking out your own health, taking ownership of it. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. If you go on that journey um, and you listen to your body, you know, I, I commend my wife on not being particularly uh, dogmatic and also not being easily led with her diet over the last couple of years. She's kind of just gone with what feels right. And she's landed in a place where diet seems to be working for her. And she's not having to count calories. She's managing her weight. She's feeling good. I know she's getting good nutrition, but she's not trying to fit into a camp. She's just going with what feels good. And if it's not working, she's stopping it and she's adjusting. Uh, and I think we could all take uh, some lessons from that. But here's the last question because I've, I've, I've loved this conversation, Dave. You've gone into you know, a whole heap of depth, which I was hoping we would go. So thank you so much for giving me and giving the audience the kind of um, education I think we, we, we deeply need, or at least the dialogue that we need to challenge our, our status quo, challenge our current thinking of cholesterol. So the last question is, the reason why we've been speaking about cholesterol for the last hour and a half plus is specifically because of our worry of heart disease. And that heart disease makes up I think it's in at least the top three of uh, most common Western diseases causing mortality. So it's a big deal. We can't, we can't, you know, shrug our shoulders and go, ah, well, you know, LDL is fine, cholesterol is fine, so we haven't got an issue. We still have the issue. The issue is people, lots of people dealing with heart-related issues. In your opinion, and I know you don't know the answer, but in your opinion, do you have an alternate? hypothesis, which 
puts out a scenario or, or, or places LDL at the crime scene, but not necessarily the criminal. Can you help us explain another way we could look at what heart disease is, atherosclerosis, and maybe an alternative perspective of how to measure our risk? Sure. Uh, actually, it's not even my theory. It's one that may even predate when I was born, but it's known as the response to injury hypothesis. And odds are most people who are listening to this right now is, have never heard of this, but it effectively presumes that rather the endothelium, which is the uh, cluster of cells that are lining your arterial wall, those cells, when they become damaged or dysfunction, recruit not just LDL, but a number of different things. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that are associated with a platelet activation and a coagulation cascade and um, and uh, expression of LDL receptors on endothelial cells. Hurting endothelial cells will express more in, uh, LDL receptors, especially in the presence of uh, platelet-derived growth factor. I know I'm getting totally geeky here for a sec, but bear with me. If If there's a call for help, there's a number of different things that come into play as part of the immune response. But one of those things that's part of the call for help are LDL particles. So we already know right now, we already know we can induce atherosclerosis in animal models. How do we know we can do it in a particular place? We damage the endothelium. For example, we can go in with a balloon catheter and denude, they call it denuding the uh, carotid artery. They, they blow up a balloon uh, constantly in the neck area. And that will induce atherosclerosis. So we know, we know causally that damage to the endothelium will induce atherosclerosis. So have we likewise, in order to determine that atherosclerosis is created solely by LDL particles and not by damage or dysfunction, have we been able to rule that portion out? And we have not. It's never happened. But to be fair, it's because it's hard to observe in vivo, which is to say in a working body as it's happening. So for now, I believe the strongest evidence, getting back to how I was saying, I want to see a healthy vascular system. I want to see an, a functional as opposed to not, as opposed to dysfunctional vascular system where we can observe atherosclerosis take place with high levels of LDL. And right at this moment in time, I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm, which is why I'm cautiously optimistic about having high LDL particles in a low inflammatory uh, environment, particularly one coming from a good diet, that it's problematic. And yeah, I wonder how much things like having high levels of LDL particles are relevant to why I've not gotten sick from anything bacterial or viral in the last four years. Is that going to be a net advantage for me? Maybe. I don't know. But all things considered, that's the hypothesis that continues to make the most sense to me. And in that regard, I don't know that I have an easy time making LDL particles just inherently the bad guy. So what's, what's, causing, what's causing so much damage across so many people in Western cultures, specifically around the arteries? Well, so this will get a little bit deeper. But in effect, uh, you can 
create what to your body appears to be a perpetual fed state where you're hyperinsulinemic all the time. And where there's a bit of internal discussion with us, especially the question is, is this like a, a perpetual immune response? Because the immune response can um, create insulin resistance ahead of hyperinsulinemia. Uh, and Siobhan Huggins has a lot that she presents on this as well. So are, through diet, are we creating an environment where we basically prevent our body from having natural states of autophagy? Uh, your body needs to rest, particularly your cells. Your cells need to do self-maintenance. That's what autophagy is. Uh, auto being self, phagy, consume. So they take care of things like misfolded proteins and so forth inside your uh, cytoplasm. And this is why I think low-carb diets are actually pretty good because they don't. They tend to have very low levels of insulin required in order to be um, in order to be fueled. Well, that's relevant because autophagy really. Uh, activates much better at low levels of presence of insulin. So if we have diets and lifestyles, if we're like eating around the clock, so we're constantly inducing this insulin response, is that how we can accomplish bringing about a greater disease state with our vascular system? I think so. I think that's why you see indigenous populations that never had any problems with heart disease until they started eating McDonald's with us or until we had other ways in which we brought uh, them our, you know, our uh, less than stellar cuisines through fast food. And I, that's why it's, it just makes more and more sense to me that this is kind of a self-induced phenomenon for us at a population level. Okay, so not, not, not fingering any particular food, uh, but a, a chronic lifestyle, which is creating a fed state uh, and, and causing hyperinsulinemia or at least just high levels of insulin, preventing cell turnover and recovery and repair is perhaps accumulating damage in a sensitive area such as our heart through time. Have I, have I, have I, have I understood what you said right or would you, would you adjust that slightly? Yeah. Yes, in effect. I mean, here's the thing about insulin. Insulin is a, it's the big boy at the table. It's, it's the one that really makes a lot of things happen and in a good way. Like we would die without insulin. We need insulin. But it is generally supposed to be increased for a moment of time in this, in the scenario of um, intake of food. And for a limited time to be elevated in the case of something like an immune response. There's really no good reason. I've never been able to find one for which insulin should be elevated, say, after 12 hours of fasting. So if you go get in a fasted blood test right now and you fasted for 12 hours and your insulin's high, I think you've got a problem. Mm. And that's why I think it's closely associated with uh, cardiovascular disease, much more so than, say, LDL. Okay. And that, well, you know what? It sounds like a, a decent hypothesis to, to try and prove wrong. At least. So uh, let's let's go with that and see where we can go. Um, and I think one just one anecdote to support that, or at least one observation that I think I quite like, is you hear people saying, "Well, if if cholesterol and or LDL is such a bad actor in our body, uh, and it's this form, so, sorry, this plaque forming substance, 
through our vascular system. Why is it that it only, these plaques only occur in the arterial walls and not throughout all our vascular system, throughout the rest of our veins? And I think that's fair because it's, it's it, what the argument is that the, the, blood, the blood levels, the concentration of LDL, uh, is the problem. Well, if, if there's high concentration of LDL across our blood flowing through all our veins, why are we not getting this issue elsewhere within our body? And my understanding at least is we don't. And then the question is, okay, well, is it LDL? Or is LDL present at a injured site? Uh, and that injury is being caused by something else. And I think that's what you're, what you're saying. Yeah, there's, again, kind of gotten a bit geeky in this podcast so i'll just take it this step just further a, I, I keep that, provoking it i'm po I apologize no, you can see i'm a slight geek myself in, in <laughs> cells clothing <laughs> so the immune response is part of how we're trying to resolve a problem and, and it's most simplest form that's what we're talking about uh endothelial cells the cells that line our vessel walls they have receptors on them receptors called scavenger receptors they're the same receptors that are found on immune cells like say a macrophage. Well, scavenger receptors are meant to bind to things that are problematic, that are not healthy. So for example, an oxidized LDL particle. Now, if you're an engineer, you're gonna stop for a second and be like, wait a sec, why would an endothelial cell, the place where we know problems are happening with atherosclerosis, why would it have a receptor? A receptor whose sole purpose is to bind to a problem LDL particle. Why? Why would it do that? And my answer to that is, I believe it's participating in the immune response, that it's part of the job of endothelial cells to capture oxidized LDL particles, probably under certain circumstances. For example, uh, perhaps when it's more capable of dealing with it. Let's say we're not even talking about what those aspects are. And therefore, it makes more sense in this larger story of where you're talking about the occurrence of these uh, uh, thromboses occur. Like the, um, um, you, you see them, for example, at bifurcations and uh, other places where you see shear stress with the hemodynamics, right? I think that that's, that's a more likely capture point where they can actually then bind to the oxidized LDL particle and take it up. And I believe part of that is that they're trying to quarantine it so that macrophages can get a hold of it, which is why when people don't have um, appropriate um, hemostasis responses, told you I was going to get geeky, but bear with me for a second. When they don't have the ability to um, uh, dissolve clots through a component called plasminogen, then what happens is you get millions of clots all throughout your vascular system. The message I take from that is we have atherosclerosis constantly getting initiated and resolved over and over and over again everywhere. The catch is that we still need endothelial cells to deal with the same thing all the other cells in the bodies, uh, all the other cells in the body are dealing with, which is their ability to do their own housekeeping, which is autophagy. Mm. So you're, you already should assume, at least I do, I already assume that there's an immune response at a very minimal local level of things like atherosclerosis that are constantly being resolved and taken care of. But then you, the person, create a situation that's just never existed in our ancestry before. We've never had periods of time where we had 
uh, available food around the clock, particularly at, at you know high sugar levels. It's just never existed. Now we've got it. And our body doesn't have a lot of practice with dealing with this. So there's no real way other than this constant induced highs, you know, levels of insulin that we're seeing this effect. And so in that sense, if we, if part of their job is this immune response, but they're always at high alert and they never have a chance to work themselves out, then that brings around more of a chance of damage. So that's, that's kind of a little more of an expanded version. <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate that, man. And you know what? I, it must be hard for you to balance, you know, with all that you know, trying to find the right tone uh, in terms of geekiness and kind of general general concepts. And I think you've done a great job. And I've kind of pulled you down a few times into the geeky, uh, <laughs> geeky sphere. And you've done a great job of still helping it make some sense, at least to me. I'm going to Google a few terms after this <laughs> podcast just to see if I can stitch it all together. But thank you, David. It has been a true pleasure. I've learned a lot, at least. Um, so look, let's close on just telling us, um, uh, again, your website, your Twitter handle, I know that you're active on, uh, maybe plug the documentary, which I've seen and, and is fantastic. And yeah, maybe uh, some future selling of the book that you're working on just give us a sense of where people can find you and how to engage with you sure it's uh cholesterolcode.com is our blog um uh, siobhan and i run it it's really we love it because basically it's our depot for all the information if you yourself if you've gone on a low-carb diet you're listening to this and you likewise have seen your ldl go up your hdl go up your triglycerides go down you should be aware we have two very active facebook groups a cholesterol code facebook group and a lean mass hyperresponder Facebook group. Uh, both of those, um, you know, you're welcome to join. As always, we like to keep it respectful, but we're very science driven. I, I'm happy to say people who have a very wide variety of opinions are there. I'm very active on Twitter, Dave Keto. Um, I really would have chosen a different Twitter, Twitter name had I known this whole thing would have blown up as much as it did. <laughs> um, and yes, the uh, documentary we were talking about was Vinnie Tortorich's um, Fat, the documentary. Uh, that documentary, a documentary. I think it's a documentary. Yes. Um, it's, it's, yes good. You, it's really it, good. It is. It's actually, you know, it really is unlike any documentary I've seen before in that it's got a very stylized pacing and, uh, it's, it's very him. It's, if you know, Vinnie Tortorich, it's, he has his own flavor to it. So it's, it's pretty entertaining in parts, especially. Um, so, and lastly, uh, yeah, I'm writing a book. In fact, I literally just got done with, a chapter yesterday, and I've got a, another one to do. I'm hoping to get this uh, manuscript locked this fall. And then uh, once it's out, it'll be named Cholesterol Code. Excellent. Uh, so. And I guess it's going to be something to do with cholesterol? What's that? It's going to be something to do with cholesterol, I'm, I'm taking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's actually, you know, it's really a lot of the behind-the-scenes story of this whole journey, uh, including a lot of stuff I've never talked about publicly before. Fantastic, man. Well, I will, I will definitely be picking the book up when, uh, when it comes through to sell. So listen, Dave, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for sharing as much as you have. Let's keep in touch. And I will do the best I can to document everything that we described at a high level, as well as all the links that you've mentioned, so people can find your stuff. And um, no doubt, guys, if you if you like what you've heard from Dave, there are other podcasts where he's done a fantastic job. He's geeked out even more on, on those ones. So I may <laughs> reference a couple of others for you to listen further as well. But Dave, just uh, leaves me to say thank you and just keep up the great work, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Cool, man. Take care. 
enjoy this show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might also enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. This is Adapt Nation.